Stanford University. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'd like to thank again the organizers of, of this event who've, who've been wonderful, uh, Deborah Satz and Joan Berry, uh, the trustees of the Tanner uh, uh, Lectures, um, the McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society, and my respondents especially uh, for their uh, goodwill, intelligence, and forbearance. <laughs> and I'd like to thank President Hennessy for being here. Um, uh, and, um, and just say essentially how happy I am to be here to, uh, to give these lectures and to talk about a subject that uh, I think is very much of the moment. So um, I'm very uh, grateful to the committee and to Stanford for inviting me. It's not, a di it's not an easy subject. It's a difficult one and an unpleasant one. And I'm gratified that you wanted to talk about it. Um, so again, there's the happy part of my talk. Um, <laughs> And now we'll go on to, there won't be so much gruesomeness today, uh, I promise. So those of you who missed yesterday, you perhaps did the right thing. Um, I won't be quoting so much from, from terrible uh, descriptions. Um, our forever war began, as I did yesterday, with a transformative image of resonance and power, the violent metamorphosis of those great New York towers taller than the builders of the Tower of Babel could ever have dreamed, into heaven-reaching plumes of white dust. As they were transformed, so were we, stepping through the portal into the state of exception, a state of exception that bears within it now, nine years later, all the signs of a prodigious contradiction, an exceptional state that, however much it has evolved, shows all signs of becoming normalized, thus seeming to contradict the most basic purpose that has, since the Roman Republic, motivated what Clinton Rossiter called constitutional dictatorship, or states of emergency. That basic purpose is, in Rossiter's emphatic words, to end the crisis and restore normal times, the complete restoration of the status quo antebellum. I emphasize complete. In the United States, normal times have not been restored. What distinguishes this state of exception, it seems to me, is its endlessness, the fact that it was tied in its imposition to a war that was in fact part metaphoric and that by its definition would not end. This does not mean that the state of exception has not evolved and changed. It certainly has. Most notably torture, which occupied so much of the discussion yesterday, has been prohibited by President Obama, an act which in itself suggests what might be called the new normal. Once forbidden as an act beyond the strictures of domestic statute and international law, which forbade it explicitly in times of emergency, torture now lies within the president's power to prohibit, or indeed to order. The change from practicing torture to prohibiting it is of course extremely significant but it is emphatically not a return to the status quo anti-bellum. So the state of exception is not ended. At best, we, we have come to live with a new normal. How precisely did this happen? Why should it matter? After all, as I mentioned, the attributes of the state of exception have become increasingly subtle. They, most of us affect us very little, if at all, uh, in our daily lives. Why should we worry if the state of exception is there keeping us safe? 
One very clipped answer, I think, is that we as a society have become trapped between the politics of fear and la politique de peur. We know the first phrase very well, of course, uh, for we see it's working almost daily as the most obvious sign of how the state of exception is fought over now as a permanent feature in our daily politics, which was the eighth of my points yesterday. We saw the most recent upsurge of this politics of fear last December after the uh, capture of the failed uh, Christmas Day bomber. After he was arrested in Detroit, he was read his Miranda rights to the loudly expressed outrage of members of the Republican Party who accused the Obama administration of returning to, quote, the failed law enforcement model of the past, the one that is that had, in this reasoning, permitted the country to be attacked on September 11th. As many pointed out at the time, uh, domestic prosecution had never been abandoned by the Bush administration, witnessed the conviction and imprisonment of Richard Reed, among others, the shoe bomber. But now its use could be used to demonstrate the supposed abandonment by President Obama of the war on terror. Uh, that would leave us vulnerable to attack, which is to say the new law, enforce or the law enforcement model was being restored. It would leave us vulnerable uh, to attack, uh, in the words of the former Vice President, Richard Cheney. We see the workings of the politics of fear also in the struggle over President Obama's announced vow to close Guantanamo within a year of taking office, a deadline, of course, that, that he failed to meet, in part because it was initially derailed in Congress as a result of unfounded claims that the new administration would be sending, this is a quote, sending terrorists to our neighborhoods. We see the, one can titter, but it was effective, uh, that phrase, very. We see the politics of fear uh, displayed in the controversy around the Obama administration's plan to prosecute Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, known as the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks and his alleged co-conspirators in federal court in Manhattan, a plan that has now apparently uh, under political pressure been discarded. We don't know what is going to be done with him, but it looks like he will not be tried in federal court, perhaps in front of a military commission, which Obama again had vowed to dismantle and abandon. Uh, but this deal apparently is being worked out now uh, with Republicans in the Senate. And we see it finally, the politics of fear in the struggle over the drafting of a law that will allow the indefinite detention of 50 or so of Guantanamo's inmates, those whom the Obama administration has determined it can neither try, that's a quote, it can neither try nor release. But what about what I've called the twin of the politics of fear, la politique de pire, a time-honored French phrase uh, dating from the 19th century and meaning roughly the politics of the worst. We need for a moment to think, I think, to return to a too seldom asked question. What exactly is this forever war about? What are we fighting about? What's its purpose? How might it end? Before we up, offer up answers like it's about keeping us safe, destroying all terrorist groups of global reach, uh, ridding the world of evildoers, those last two were Bush administration phrases, of course, uh, ridding the world of evildoers, I like especially. Um, I think it useful to have a look at, at critical actors in this drama whom I didn't really mention, didn't discuss yesterday. I mean the forces of Al-Qaeda and its allies, uh, the enemy. And to ask after the goals of those enemies, or more, more precisely, what exactly it was they were trying to achieve on that bright September Sunday, or that bright September morning nine years ago. <clears throat> they intended, not least, of course, to kill a lot of people, uh, and they did that. Uh, they killed nearly 3,000, 2,600 of them Americans, 
And by an order of magnitude, this was the largest civilian death toll of any attack in American history, uh, or for that matter, any terrorist attack in world history, at least as terrorism is conventionally defined. But this no more describes al-Qaeda's ultimate goal than killing jihadis would suffice as a statement of American war aims. On September 11, 2001, al-Qaeda's weapon of choice was neither box cutters nor airliners, but that great American invention, the television set. The goal, brilliantly achieved, was to create an ineradicable image that would spread fear, and also, critically, hope. Hope, that is, to young Muslim men that the United States, the great superpower standing behind the oppressive, idolatrous, apostate puppet states of Egypt and Saudi Arabia, was indeed vulnerable, that it could be attacked and defeated. The purpose, that is, was in part the purpose of all terrorism, as defined by the late Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, himself, of course, a former leader of the Ergun and a dynamiter of the King David Hotel, which killed more than 100 people. That purpose is to dirty the face of power, in Begin's resonant words. In dirtying the face of American power, the burning, collapsing towers, that lasting iconic image of triumph and destruction, was meant to serve, grotesque as this may seem, as a giant recruitment poster for the jihadi cause. It meant, and means whenever it appears again on television screens around the world, we can win. We can defeat them. Join us. It is an image, again grotesque as it seems, of idealistic struggle. For Osama bin Laden is engaged first and foremost in building a movement. His ultimate goals, that is, are political even if he's trying to achieve them by military means, by the use of terror. That is why the second major goal of the jihadis that we can identify in attacking New York and Washington on September 11th was to provoke the United States to react, and to react by taking dramatic and brutal, and the hope was, telegenic action against Muslims. Much evidence, written evidence, suggests that bin Laden assumed the reaction would come in an immediate invasion, American invasion of an occupation of Afghanistan, an occupation that would lead to an endless grinding war and that this quagmire would allow his Arab legionaries, heeding the call from throughout the Islamic world to join their Taliban holy warriors, to defeat the sole remaining superpower in that mountainous graveyard of empires, thus reenacting, at least in bin Laden's rather grandiose but vivid conception of it, the destruction of the Soviet Union before it. In the event, of course, the Bush administration after contending itself largely with aerial bombardment of Afghanistan, supporting the forces of the Northern Alliance on the ground, the full-on occupation, of course, has come only later, uh, did bin Laden one better by invading and occupying Iraq, a more important Muslim country, one much more central to the average Muslim's concern. The effect, though, and the consequences were the same, luring the Americans into embodying quite vividly the caricature that the jihadis had made of us, a blundering, godless, muscle-bound, violent superpower intent on humiliating, repressing, and killing Muslims. The day-to-day secondhand repression exercised through the Mubarak regime in Cairo, to which the United States gives roughly $2 billion in, in foreign aid annually, and the House of Saud in Riyadh, over which the U.S. stands as guarantor of security and stability. This secondhand repression carried out by what the jihadists called the near enemies, that is, those, those regimes and their allies, would suddenly be embodied in a first-hand U.S. occupation of a major Arab country by the far enemy itself, as it were, in person, 
with Muslims heroically fighting and dying at the hands of American soldiers on television screens across the Islamic world. And this exists in various documents. This is indeed what they expected to happen. Let us call this embodiment of la politique de pire the strategy of provocation. Its central dynamic, of course, is quite familiar from Marxist revolutionary politics of the 19th century. Following them, the, and who the jihadis have read this stuff, they're quite influenced by it. Following them, the jihadi theorists, theorists believe, in Michael Ignatiev's phrase or version, that I'm quoting, by provoking the United States and its Arab allies into indiscriminate acts of repression, they will turn them, as it were, into recruiting sergeants for its cause. They have understood that the impact of terrorism is dialectical. Success depends less on the initial attack than on instigating an escalatory spiral, controlled not by the forces of order, but by the terrorists themselves. That last point, I think, is, is vital, uh, for it identifies one of the critical problems of the current politics of fear. It makes our politics prey to their actions. I want to emphasize, though, that this general dynamic is well understood by our enemies, who, while the Bush administration contented itself with endless repetitions of the mindless formula that they hate our freedoms in describing jihadist goals, uh, self-consciously enunciate it as a strategy. Um, it should be noted, by the way, that bin Laden himself has ridiculed this phrase repeatedly in his propaganda, asking if we hate our freedoms, their freedoms, why didn't we attack Sweden? Um, which is a fairly well-known line in the, in the Middle East. Um, uh, the late Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the Jordanian-born leader of al-Qaeda in Mesopotamia, uh, he was killed, incidentally, in an airstrike based on information that was gathered using, brilliantly, traditional methods of interrogation, as vividly described in Matthew Alexander's book, How to Break a Terrorist, terrific book which I, I recommend if you're interested in interrogation. Uh, Zarqawi described the strategy of provocation vividly in his famous 2004 analysis of his tactical and strategic goals. Here's how Zarqawi, a Jordanian Sunni Arab, who was then leading a vicious and unrelenting campaign of suicide bombing against the Shia in Iraq, some months, as you may remember, averaged more than three suicide attacks on Shia targets every day, and some of them killed uh, more than 100 people. It was an incredible thing. Uh, here's how he described his strategy in 2004 in a, in a captured letter. He said, by targeting and hitting the Shia in their religious, political, and military depth, we will provoke them to show the Sunnis their rabies and bear the teeth of the hidden rancor working in their breasts. If we succeed in dragging the Shia into the arena of, sect of sectarian war, it will become possible to awaken the inattentive Sunnis as they feel imminent danger and annihilating death. Despite their weakness and fragmentation, the Sunnis are the sharpest blades. So Zarqawi's purpose in launching a series of suicide attacks on the Shia, in other words, is to provoke them to respond by attacking the Sunnis, something they finally did in February 2006 after they blew up, Zarqawi's people blew up the Golden Mosque in Samarra. Zarqawi intended those Shia counterattacks on the Sunni, which he had been struggling to provoke, to force the Iraqi Sunni, Zarqawi's allies, to rise up, defend themselves, and retake power. He was trying, that is, to provoke a triumphant Sunni response. His violence was meant to be a remedy, I think this is the critical point here, to be a remedy for the political weakness of his own cause among Sunnis. He was using terrorism to make up for the lack of political popularity of his cause. 
but the remedy depended crucially on the reaction, or indeed the overreaction of his targets. He had to force them to do the political work for him, which is to say the central point is terrorism is a strategy of the weak. Um, Bin Laden, similarly, in trying to provoke an American attack on Muslims, aims to revitalize his movement and fuel a Muslim uprising to, in Zarqawi's phrase, awaken the inattentive Muslims to the true depredations of the United States, depredations usually concealed, as it were, in this way of thinking, in the actions of American clients, especially those who rule in Cairo and Riyadh. In this conception, the United States is the distant puppet master. Its responsibility for those malign activities of Hosni Mubarak, the House of Saud, are con concealed by these hidden strings. An American invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, on the other hand, would tear the mask off the far enemy and show it for what it really was, a murderous repressor of Muslims. And by awakening the inattentive Muslims, it would launch the movement that would overthrow the current apostate regimes of the Muslim world, the allies of the United States, and lead to bin Laden's ultimate goal, the worldwide fundamentalist revolution and the reestablishment of the caliphate. In this sense, the attacks of 9-11 were a determined attempt to draw the United States publicly dramatically, unmistakably, into, as the title of one analyst phrases it, someone else's civil war through provocation. Now, this is an age-old strategy of guerrilla warfare and of, of terrorists. If you're weak, if you have no army of your own, borrow your enemy's army. Provoke your opponent to do your political work for you. And Al-Qaeda knows that in this sense, they are weak. As no less a figure than Ayman al-Zawahiri, his uh, deputy and main strategist put it, quote, however far our capabilities reach, they will never be equal to one thousandth of the capabilities of the kingdom of Satan that is waging war on us. Kingdom of Satan, I think you know who that is. Uh, recognizing that their capabilities were small, they sought to use ours. And in launching the war on terror, occupying a major Muslim country, and producing the celebrated images of repression and torture, from Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, we proved ourselves very happy to oblige. It's seen against this background that the former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's answer, when asked why he supported the Iraq war, becomes almost poignant. Uh, Kissinger said, we needed to invade Iraq, quote, because Afghanistan wasn't enough, because we needed to humiliate them as they wanted to humiliate us. Um, now, in Kissinger's realist conception, the image of American tanks rumbling down the streets of an occupied Arab capital would restore the prestige that the superpower had lost in the 9-11 attacks. That image on the world's television sets would supplant the collapsing world trade towers, cleansing, as it were, the dirtied face of power. <clears throat> now, who knows? Perhaps the invasion, if the invasion had worked out uh, as the Bush strategists had fantasized, uh, if the Americans had quickly installed a democratic Shia regime, removed almost all of its troops within three months, uh, and this was their plan, perhaps the face of power would have been cleansed. Uh, and the creative instability, that's their phrase, that they hoped to provoke throughout the Middle East with a democratic tsunami sweeping from Tehran to Ramallah to Beirut and bringing in its stead popular American-supporting, Israel-recognizing regimes Perhaps if this fantasy had come to pass, things might have been different. That's a big perhaps, of course. Uh, for the Iraq war was indeed, in one of its many strands of justification, an answer to the political challenge presented by Osama bin Laden. Uh, Condoleezza Rice put it, 
uh, one of its purposes to give, I'm quoting, young Muslims hope and keep them from driving airliners into buildings in New York and Washington. So there was a political sense behind this. It's arguable how predominant it was, but it certainly was there. Uh, but that vision was uh, a fantasy um, with no consideration of how that demo democratic paradise might be achieved. And the Iraq occupation produced instead, as we know, an endless and spectacularly brutal insurgency, daily television footage of Muslims fighting and dying at the hands of American occupiers, and finally, the most lasting, powerful images of the entire war on terror, and one has to be in the Middle East maybe to, to, to appreciate this, uh, after the young Muslim men, their eyes blindfolded and goggled, their ears muffled, kneeling in their orange jumpsuits within the wire cages of Guantanamo, could now be placed the iconic images of hooded and naked and powerless Muslim men chained to the bars of cells, being forced to masturbate, being forced naked to climb on top of one another under the eyes of beefy American soldiers in combat fatigues in the stark squalor of Abu Ghraib. If bin Laden had come to Madison Avenue seeking a poster embodying his, his cause, it's hard to imagine he could have found one more effective than hooded man balanced precariously on his box with wires extending from his fingers, or especially leashed man, a naked Muslim man lying on the dirty floor, his face convulsed in pain and humiliation with a leash leading from his neck to the hand of a young American woman, American female soldier, standing over him, smiling triumphantly in her military fatigues. It's almost too good to be true. Uh, it's difficult to imagine a more perfectly crafted image of American repression, humiliation, and very important, emasculation of Muslims. These images embodied not only in television footage, but in murals and paintings and countless reproductions of all kinds, swept across the Islamic world and unquestionably had a potent political effect, serving as a spur to Muslim anger and to recruitment in the jihadi cause, by any measure a potent victory in la politique de pire. <clears throat> so often when speaking of these matters, as with, with many uh, things having to do with politics um, and human rights, so often when speaking of these matters, we find ourselves struggling to compare incommensurables. But we can say that any judgment of the practical value of enhanced interrogation techniques, is that, if that's what we're gonna narrow the question down to, must confront a very basic question. If one can identify vital information that was indeed derived from these techniques, the techniques I described yesterday, information which could not have been derived by use of traditional and indisputably legal methods, and as we saw yesterday, whether there exists any such information remind, remains a matter of violent dispute, not least among professional interrogators, but assuming that one can find it, how critical would such information have to be to begin to outweigh the vast political costs that have accompanied the way it was gathered? Such a question, of course, can never be answered qualitatively. Uh, it's inherently political, beginning with a counterfactual built into its premise. How do we identify information that could not have been gathered in any other way, particularly when experienced interrogators like Ali Soufan, who, who I quoted at length yesterday, Matthew Alexander, uh, Stephen Kleinman, one of my respondents here, particularly when these very knowledgeable and experienced professionals dispute the very premise of the question. But we need to begin to place it within the broader politics of the forever war itself, which brings me back to my initial question. What's the war about? What are both sides trying to achieve and what would constitute victory? 
For if it wasn't clear in the aftermath of September 11th when President Bush uttered the phrase, it should be clear by now that the United States will not ever succeed in ridding the world of evildoers, at least not by killing them or capturing them one by one. What's it about? Well, I want you to imagine for a second a target, the image of a target, one of those large targets with concentric circles of different colors, the kind you shoot at with a bow and arrow. Imagine at its red center at the bullseye the Muslims who are most committed jihadists, the leaders of the groups themselves, uh, the men and women willing to blow themselves up to support that cause. Imagine at the second circle, the yellow one surrounding the bullseyes, committed supporters who actively aid and abet the cause. Imagine in the next circle, those who contribute money to the cause, and in the next, those who argue for its goals and aspirations, and in the next, those who are politically sympathetic but who do nothing, and in the next, those Muslims who watch and follow the struggle with interest, whose political sympathies are undetermined but perhaps can be swayed. And finally, in the last circle, Muslims who count themselves apolitical or actively oppose the jihadist cause. If we keep this simple image in mind, perhaps we can concisely describe the strategic goals of the forever war. For Osama bin Laden and his colleagues, the task is to accelerate the movement of people from the outer circles to the inner ones. That is, to radicalize the population of young Muslims to, quote, awaken the sleeping Sunnis to lead apolitical Muslims to move into the circle of those sympathetic to the cause, to move those sympathetic uh, into those who contribute money and support, to move those who contribute money into the circle of those who struggle and fight. That is to cause a general migration toward the center, toward committed and violent activism. For the United States, the strategic goal in this war, conceived in this way, is obviously to slow the movement of people from the outer circles toward the inner ones, to stop those who give money from becoming active supporters, discourage those, et cetera, et cetera. And most of, all, the, most of all, to dissuade those who are undecided to become sympathetic to the jihadist cause, dissuade, dissuade them. Um, the task of the United States is to follow, insofar as it's possible, in concert with other interests, which is, of course, an important and very difficult caveat, which has to do also with our relationships long-term in the Middle East, which I've referred to several times, but to follow, insofar as it's possible, policies that will discourage the radicalization of Muslims. Bin Laden's, on the contrary, is not only to encourage radicalization, but to provoke the US to do things that will make that task easier. Donald Rumsfeld summarized this in a Defense Department memo, one of his famous snowflakes, in 2003. Quote, are we capturing, killing, or deterring and dissuading more terrorists every day then the madrasas and the radical clerics are recruiting, training, and deploying against us. He asked his colleagues this. The concision here is typical. Rumsfeld's memos, of course, were famous and also telling. For look closely at the verbs, capturing, killing, deterring, dissuading. That these tasks can be contradictory has been well proved in our nine-year state of exception. Killing and capturing, depending on the methods used, can clash rather violently with deterring and dissuading. Capturing and detaining in Guantanamo, the treatment that was meted out, the images that were broadcast, clashed vividly with deterring and detaining, not to speak of Abu Ghraib. We saw this clash vividly throughout the Bush years, and also, it should be said, uh, the emphasis very gradually shifted, at, shifted and evolved. The Bush war on terror in 2008 was not the same as the war on terror of 2003. But more than anything, no matter how much public dis diplomacy was undertaken, 
for this is one of the things the Bush administration started to do when they realized this problem rather belatedly. Uh, how, however much was undertaken to regain the sympathy of Muslims throughout the world, you might remember a series of uh, uh, very talented people were appointed to jobs in the State Department, Charlotte Beers, Margaret Tutwiler, Karen Hughes, all of them to conduct public diplomacy in the Middle East. Uh, the ongoing bleeding sore of the Iraq War and the lingering images from Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib that seemed its inseparable accompaniment limited how far that change could be taken. Uh, these visits of these uh, diplomats became legendary jokes in the, in the Middle East. Uh, it's hard to make the case that we love Muslims when you have images from Guantanamo and from Iraq on the television screens every night. Uh, Senator Barack Obama, Senator, as he made evident, understood bin Laden's politique de pire. Uh, quote, bin Laden and his allies know they cannot defeat us on the field of battle or in a genuine battle of ideas, the candidate declared in August 2007. But they can provoke the reaction we've seen in Iraq, a misguided invasion of a Muslim country that sparks new insurgencies. He went on. Too often, this is an important speech, his major foreign policy speech in August uh, of uh, 2007, when he was given, of course, no hope of winning. Uh, too often since 9-11, the extremists have defined us, not the, not the other way around. I also will reject a legal framework, and here he sets out his policy on the state, what I've called the state of exception. I will reject a legal framework that does not work. As president, I will close Guantanamo, reject the Military Commissions Act, adhere to the Geneva Conventions, our Constitution and our Uniform Code of Military Justice provide a framework for dealing with terrorists. This administration also puts forward a false choice. He was talking about the Bush administration. Between the liberties we cherish and the security we demand, I will provide our intelligence law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens, no more something he is not fulfilled, no more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. He's working on that. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war. No more ignoring the law when it is inconvenient. That's not who we are, and it's not what is necessary to defeat the terrorists. The FISA court works. The separation of powers works. Our Constitution works. We will again set an example for the world that the law is not subject to the whims of stubborn rulers and that justice is not arbitrary. Um, so this was a long time ago. Um, and it's a speech that any you know, member of Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International could only love. It was right out of the playbook. Um, so the words are eloquent, clear, forceful. President Obama adopted a similar tone on his second full day in office when he, quote, prohibited torture, uh, limiting those techniques that could be used to those contained in the Army Field Manual. He set up special task forces to study interrogation and how it should be performed and vowed to close Guantanamo within a year. Um, the results, as I suggested just a moment ago, have been quite mixed, not least because of the emergence, as no one could have predicted, of Vice President Dick Cheney as a visible, persistent, and relentless advocate of the use of enhanced interrogation techniques and a prophet of the disaster that would befall the United States if their use was renounced. The former vice president, beginning a week after Obama's inauguration, just a week, actually, I'm sorry, it was 10 days, but I don't think there's anything like this in history, that the vice president leaves the White House 10 days later, he's on the tube, uh, criticizing very vehemently the new administration, which after all has only been in power a week. Um, he told a television interviewer, this is Cheney, 
when we get people who are more concerned about reading the rights to an al-Qaeda terrorist than, than, we are with, than they are with protecting the United States, he's talking about the new administration, uh, protecting the United States against people who are absolutely committed to do anything they can to kill Americans, then I worry. These are evil people. We're not going to win this fight by turning the other cheeks. If it hadn't been for what we did with respect to the enhanced interrogation techniques, then we would have been attacked again. Those policies we put in place, in my opinion, were absolutely crucial to getting us through the last seven plus years without a major casualty attack on the US. A few weeks later, he went further, uh, worrying, citing publicly once again his worry about a quote, 9-11 type event where the terrorists are armed with something much more dangerous than an airline ticket and a box cutter. A nuclear weapon, or, odd way to summarize 9-11 by the way, a nuclear weapon or a biological agent of some kind. That's the one that would involve the deaths of perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, and the one you have to spend a hell of a lot of time guarding against. I think there's a high probability of such an attempt. Whether or not they can pull it off, to, I mean, to me, this is amazing rhetoric uh, coming from you know, the former second officer of the government. Whether or not they can pull it off depends on whether or not we keep in place policies that have allowed us to defeat all further attempts since 9-11 to launch mass casualties attacks against the United States. And then he went on to talk about Guantanamo. If you release the hardcore Al-Qaeda terrorists that are held at Guantanamo, I think they go back into the business of trying to kill more Americans and mount further mass casualty attacks. If you turn them loose and they go kill more Americans, who's responsible for that, he said. Who indeed? Um, so he links the closing of Guantanamo directly to a weapon of mass destruction attack on the United States. Uh, now, these dark admonitions, which are both ex exculpatory, pointing back to what the administration did and justifying it, and minatory, warning about what will happen in the future, and laying down a predicate for who will be blamed, have had, I think, an extremely vivid political effect. Even though he's personally not very popular, the rhetoric has been extremely important. How could they not have had an effect? As all politicians and all terrorists know, fear is the most lucrative political emotion. In the wake of Cheney's comment, which despite the former president's personal unpopularity had wide resonance uh, at the time when the Republican Party, another I think important point, lacked recognized leaders, Congress declined to vote funds for the president's plan to close Guantanamo. The result of a campaign brilliantly spearheaded by the resonant warning that the new president intended indeed to put terrorists in all of our neighborhoods. And we see its effect in the refusal. This is, by the way, one of the echoes also of Cold War rhetoric, uh, which we've seen frequently way back throughout the Bush administration. And we see its effect in the refusal to release additional photographs of torture, which would have made torture for the second time since 9-11 uh, since uh, telegenic, that is, which would have made it a television story. We see it in the resistance to release memoranda on that subject and the increasing willingness to take positions similar to the Bush administration when it comes to lawsuits regarding torture and detainee rights. The most characteristic decision, though, the one that expresses most purely the ambivalence of the Obama administration, caught between the desire for justice and the reluctance to confront the political costs of supplying it, uh, costs that must be weighed against more tangible political goals like passing health care reform or financial reform, which is to say, what's the upside here? What do we get out of this? Is the decision not to bring criminal investigations against those who have tortured, or rather to do so only in the case of those who have gone beyond the Bush administration's immensely wide guidelines? 
Attorney General Eric Holder passed, had passed the task of examining, or has passed the task, of examining for possible prosecution the behavior of the CIA interrogators to special counsel John Durham, a U.S. attorney from, from Hartford, who was already investigating the destruction in 2005 of the 92 videotapes that had been made of the interrogations of Abu Zubaydah and other detainees. Uh, all of these tapes, which recorded this stuff uh, minute by minute, were mysteriously destroyed. Uh, in fact, they, there is a claim that there are no transcript of, transcripts of the interrogations, which is an astonishing notion, if it is true. Uh, Mr. Durham must now decide whether anything done in the interrogations, uh, one of which I recounted to you in some detail yesterday, uh, merit prosecution, but with one critical caveat. He can investigate only those activities that went beyond what was allowed in the Bush administration's own torture memos and identified as such by the report of the CIA Inspector General in 2004, which was recently released, one of those documents whose release caused such, such controversy. So we might find ourselves in a position where might, where a court case is brought against a former interrogator, not for waterboarding, but for using too much water. And doing it, I mean, it sounds funny, but in fact, that is what's in, the, what's in these uh, documents. Um, uh, and it, the difference, I should add, is not trivial at all, um, but the idea of it is ridiculous. And doing it with, with too much frequency, another important point, that one, uh, one prisoner is waterboarded 83 times, a second 183 times. Uh, an interrogator might be prosecuted not for shackling a prisoner by his wrist to the ceiling for two weeks or three weeks on end, but be taken to court for racking his semi-automatic pistol next to the detainee's hooded head and threatening to execute him, another thing that, that did indeed happen, or threatening to murder his family, um, or blowing cigar smoke extensively in his face over a period of hours. Um, uh, the interrogator in that case claims that he was just smoking the cigar to, to uh, cover up the stench. Um, anyway, all these things were done at the black sites, including, uh, according to the Inspector General's reports, I don't know if we'll see prosecutions in the future. I rather doubt it. Uh, but if we do, it will be very hard to look at them and call them justice under these terms. I should add, by the way, that the people I respect think that these sorts of prosecutions might be the way into the justice system uh, for these issues. That is, if somebody was indicted on such a charge, uh, the defense would be uh, it would be incumbent on the defense in such a case to bring all these issues out, what was approved, what was not, and that this indeed might be a way for these cases to actually come under the purview uh, of the court system. That's uh, a somewhat optimistic view and a somewhat contradictory one, but, um, but there it is. Uh, President Barack Obama has spoken out strongly as, against torture. This is important. We can be grateful that on this issue he's brought to bear his usual eloquence, uh, especially in his Nobel Prize lecture in Oslo. Um, I'm going to read a little passage of that. I believe, I begin with, he said, I believe that all nations, strong and weak alike, must adhere to standards that govern the use of force. I mean, all this is clearly about the last administration. I, like any head of state, reserve the right to act unilaterally, if necessary, to defend my nation. Nevertheless, I'm convinced that adhering to standards strengthens those who do and isolates and weakens those who don't. Where force is necessary, we have a moral and strategic interest in binding ourselves to certain rules of conduct. And even as we, as we confront a vicious adversary that abides by no rules, I believe that the United States of America must remain a standard bearer in the conduct of war. 
that is what makes us different from those whom we fight. That's a source of our strength. That's why I prohibited torture. That is why I ordered the prison at Guantanamo Bay closed. That's why I've reaffirmed America's commitment to abide by the Geneva Conventions. We lose ourselves when we compromise the very ideals that we fight to defend, and we honor those ideals by upholding them, not just when it is easy, but when it is hard. This is very eloquent, I think, extremely well-stated, very welcome. It contrasts strongly with the stark philosophy of unilateralism, unilateralism and power rules of the Bush administration, whose essence, I think, was expressed per perfectly in this quotation from the National Security Strategy of 2005, something President Bush took a very strong interest in. He kept rejecting the drafts. He said he wanted the boys in Lubbock to understand it, he said, which is a quote I like very much. Anyway, one sentence from that, nations will continue to challenge us, employing the weapons of the weak, including international fora, judicial processes, and terrorism. So terror is here placed alongside international law, the courts, and other attributes of multilateralism as serving to limit American power. This dark vision sees international life as a zero-sum game in which the strongest state simply has no interest in adhering to international law, in which the strongest is limited only by one thing, its own power. It's the nightmare of an unbound America that so-called wise men put aside after World War II by embedding American power in institutions like the UN, NATO, the Marshall Plan, and others. The new president in his rhetoric and his behavior is very far from that, and it's likely that 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 distance, the world's gratitude for it, uh, earned him the Nobel Peace Prize when his accomplishments, as he uh, himself said, uh, had up to then been very slight. So we have to be grateful for what he's done, what he said, not least his decision to end the practices I described yesterday and his vow as yet unfulfilled to close Guantanamo. But we can show our gratitude, it seems to me, by listening closely to his words. For example, his statement that he has prohibited torture a power, as I mentioned, that he in fact lacks, and that in its bald assertion tells us how far we have come from beneath the shadow of international law, or these words from later in the same speech. Furthermore, America cannot insist that others follow the rules of the road if we refuse to follow them ourselves. For when we don't, our action can appear arbitrary and undercut the legitimacy of future intervention, no matter how justified. First, in dealing with those nations that break rules and laws, I believe that we must develop alternatives to violence that are tough enough to change behavior. For if we want a lasting peace, then the words of the international community must mean something. Those regimes that break the rules must be held accountable. Accountable. It's an important word, and the truth is that we've heard too little of it lately. Uh, as I stand here, precisely no one beyond a handful of low-ranking soldiers from Abu Ghraib have been held accountable for torture. Now, this is an immensely difficult problem, uh, and I envy colleagues and friends who find it simple, uh, who argue, for example, that Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney uh, and colleagues must be arrested, tried for violating the Convention Against Torture, the Domestic Torture Statute, and other laws. There's a problem, of course. Uh, those techniques that were discussed so carefully at the upper levels of the CIA were also discussed specifically and in detail in the Department of Justice. Lawyers there approve them in detail. We now have those documents. We've had a number of them for more than five years. They make astonishing reading. But it was not just the lawyers in the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. It was the senior officials of our government discussing these techniques in the White House. 
uh, for George Tennant, then CIA director, traveled frequently from Langley, Virginia, across the Potomac almost daily to see the White House uh, among the principals committee. That is, among senior officers of the government, including the Vice President, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Attorney General, it's fair to say that the officers of the CIA, I talked about this yesterday and Josh uh, quoted the end, many of them perhaps with memories of the Church Committee inquiry of the mid-70s, made certain that responsibility and awareness was spread very broadly all across the top of the government, and they made sure to get a so-called golden shield or get out of jail card so that these techniques would be shown to be legal. So we now have to deal not only with the acts themselves, but with the corruption of language and law and of the legal and bureaucratic processes, processes of government that accompanied them. With President Bush's repeated insistence, most vividly, uh, which symbolizes all of this, that the United States doesn't torture, which he said again and again, and with the fact that President Obama has no choice in his statements that presumably mean something very different to use precisely the same word. How do we escape from this? President Obama said repeatedly that when it comes to these matters, he wants to look forward, not back. I think that's a pernicious, a pernicious phrase. And if held to consistently would preclude all punishment and all prosecution. Rendering justice by definition implies looking backward. But the political costs of justice, at least that provided by prosecution, are very great. For we live still in the politics of fear. How can we return to justice? I believe the road will not run through prosecutions. Uh, and if they happen, I think they'll be very distant uh, from now. But through education. That's why I've called for the establishment of a broad nonpartisan commission to investigate what was done in the realm of interrogation, who did it, what it accomplished, and not least, how it hurt and how it helped the country. Such a commission made up of respected public figures provided with the highest security clearances would investigate not only what information was gathered using these methods, for of course much information was gathered. The CIA had custody of these people in the black site for years, many years and what its value was. It would judge whether indeed things were learned that could not have been learned using more traditional methods. And I emphasize judge because there's no way to tell that for sure. And they would be charged with judging these gains against the damage such methods did to the country, not only in the cause of spectacular mistaken pieces of information gained by torture, and I should point to, which I didn't yesterday, the most notorious of these, which came from Mr. Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, who was brutally tortured by the Egyptians at the direction, which is to say the day-to-day -day direction, of the Americans, who finally, after multiple applications of the waterboard and a lot of other very horrible things, supplied the intelligence, I quote that, about the famous mobile biological weapons labs that Saddam was concealing in Iraq, which Secretary of State Colin Powell, of course, trumpeted before the United Nations on February 5th, 2003, in an immensely, I mean, arguably the most influential television speech um, uh, and the most important public argument, public case, the United States made for going to war in Iraq. And this is a matter of grave public concern. It's the Secretary of State making the case to the world why the United States has to fight uh, a war against a, another country. This information, of course, and other details like the charge that the Iraqis were training al-Qaeda in the use of chemical weapons, came directly from the torture room produced by the water board. That the US Secretary of State used information gained by torture, false information, to make his country's case for war is one of the shameful episodes of recent history. 
and it needs to be investigated. It's incredible to me that it, that it hasn't been. Uh, and it's an indication, it seems to me, of, of, of where we are. Um, judgment of these matters cannot be scientific. Researching what information was gained, separating out which of it, if anything, could not have been gained in any other way, again, a matter of judgment, weighing that residue of information and its usefulness against what the country suffered as a result of these policies, and particularly the damage it did itself in what I've called la politique de pire, this is a matter for careful judgment by serious and trustworthy and well-respected people. Believe me, I know all the downsides of commissions, um, but I see no other way with this. Following the considered weighing of all the extant information, for the priority must be not destroying the torturers, but destroying, first of all, the idea of torture, of its necessity. One of the most pernicious effects of the state of exception, and this is ongoing, every time people talk about it, from the vice, former vice president on down, not just it's damaging the reputation of the country, hindering our political ability to wage a worldwide counterinsurgency against jihadism, has been the spread of a conviction among an increasing number of Americans. And the poll results show this, that this number, because of this debate, presumably seems to be going up. The spread of a conviction among an increasing number of Americans that it is impossible to protect the country, to keep the United States safe, while also following the law. I want to end by talking for a moment about what the president knows. He knows that a crude nuclear weapon is planted somewhere in the Bay Area, probably in the city of San Francisco. He knows that it is set to go off within a few hours, certainly by day's end. He knows that he has set all his considerable federal, state, and local resources, intelligence, police, fire department, to finding the weapon, but that they have not found it. And finally, he knows a man has been taken into custody who knows the location of the nuclear weapon. He knows this not only because various unimpeachable intelligence sources tell him, but also because the man, after several hours of extensive interrogation using traditional means, has freely admitted he knows, has offered confirmable facts that only someone intimately connected to the plot could know, and finally has insistently repeated, when asked to give up his knowledge of the location of the bomb, only these words, soon you will know. Soon everyone, all who survive, will know. What should the president do? <laughs> yes, yes, this is the dreaded ticking bomb scenario. I've, I've made it as intense as I can. Endlessly fertile fount of a thousand television dramas, most famously of 24, which could and should well have been called the ticking bomb, and a million law school and political science seminars. We dread it not least because it is, after all, fantastical in its epistemological presumptions. How could any president ever have such nearly perfect knowledge? And if we're going to posit a nearly omniscient president, why not just supply him with the last bit of information <laughs> and be done with it? <laughs> and why, after all, insist on talking about hypotheticals when we have real cases to discuss? Scores, by the way, of real cases where the government actually made the decision to torture, or, if you will, to use enhanced interrogation techniques. And the circumstances of those actual cases, needless to say, not least what was known and not known, is quite dramatically different from the case I've just described. 
As the CIA Inspector General put it starkly in 2004 in this report that was released quite recently, the agency's intelligence on al-Qaeda was limited prior to the initiation of the interrogation program. The agency lacked adequate linguists or subject, subject matter experts and had very little hard knowledge of what particular al-Qaeda leaders who later became detainees knew. This lack of information led analysts to speculate about what a detainee should know that's in quotes from the Inspector General, versus information the analyst could objectively demonstrate the detainee did know. When a detainee did not respond to a question posed to him, the assumption at headquarters was that the detainee was holding back and knew more. Consequently, headquarters, we're talking about the people cabling from Virginia to the black sites, consequently, headquarters recommended, which is to say ordered, resumption of enhanced interrogation techniques. So you had a dynamic that's absolutely contrary to what I've just described, absolutely in the other direction. It's based on ignorance and heads toward more and more use of the same techniques along a, a, strat, a continuum of harshness that I talked about uh, yesterday or that I quoted Ali Soufan in talking about, leading to more and more use of the same techniques and more and more demands for knowledge that the detainee may well not have had. When I first read this passage, I thought of Jean Améry, a resistance fighter arrested in Belgium during World War II, who's given a choice after his arrest between cooperating, telling what he knows, and being sent to the notorious Brindonk Fortress for interrogation by the Gestapo. He said, I would be most pleased to avoid Brindonk, with which I was quite familiar, and give the evidence desired of me, except that I unfortunately knew nothing Accomplices, I could name only their aliases. Hiding places, but, but one was led to them at night. For these men, however, that was far too familiar twaddle, and they laughed contemptuously. And suddenly I felt the first blow. The first blow brings home to the prisoner that he is helpless, and thus it already contains in it the bud of everything that is to come. They are permitted to punch me in the face the victim feels in numb surprise, and concludes in just as numb certainty, they will do with me what they want. What is fascinating here is the reversal of knowledge, the standing on its head of the epistemological reality. The ticking bomb posits perfect knowledge on the part of the interrogators and the president who will order them to torture, apart from one small but vital piece. It's a very hygienic little uh, model. The reality, whether it's Jean Améry or Abu Zubaydah, of tortured detainee is that he only truly knows what he knows and is faced with the task, often insurmountable, of convincing the ignorant interrogator of what he does not, of convincing him that he is not holding back, that he is told what he knows. He is faced, and here again we have a strange echo of Saddam and our country's action, actions around his weapons of mass destruction. He is faced with proving that, that what is not there, that is... <laughs> that what is not there is not there. The ticking bomb, of course, is a kind of philosopher's trick, a fiendishly clever attempt to slash a rhetorical hold, hole in the lining of our ethical world. It aims to demolish the wall of absolutism surrounding torture and make the decision one of degree. It aims to make the staunch deontologist, uh, and by means to take, excuse me, it aims to take the staunch deontologist and by means of an alluring fantasy, and it is alluring, force him to become a consequentialist, to shake the dour Kantian until he surrenders and accept that 
In this case only, he will consent to become a happily calculating benthamite. And then, of course, the rhetorician pounces. So you would torture under certain conditions. Now that we have established the principle, to repeat George Bernard Shaw's quip about prostitution, it only remains to haggle about the price. What matters about the ticking bomb scenario is not the likelihood that it will happen in reality, which is very low indeed, but its potency as an image of commitment and a political test of the politics of fear. What matters, that is, is its, is its inherent drama and the fact that it is captured by means of 24 and its cultural ancestors, especially Dirty Harry, the imagination of the public, and indeed the high ground of the argument. What matters is that most citizens, when they think of torture, seem to think of such an unlikely event, the ticking bomb, first. We should, we must disarm the ticking bomb. It's time to admit clearly that the, in the event of such a bizarre eventuality, any president, any leader, would do what the situation requires. That is, would be bound by his judgment of what the country's immediate welfare demands. That in such a situation, any leader, in fact, becomes a consequentialist, must become one. A fact Machiavelli recognized five centuries ago. Some writers I admire, Philip Heyman, for example, and Juliet Kayam, have suggested that such an exception be written into the law. That is, that we should legislate the exception. That the president, under certain exigent circumstances, be granted the legal right to use cruel and human and degrading treatment to acquire information that could prevent an imminent attack. This is, of course, what might be called the paradox of the exception. Do we gain or lose by trying to legislate emergency procedures? Do we, by making them legal in certain situations, make it more likely they'll be used? Or do we, by writing them into the law, bring them under the rule of societal consent and regulation? Perhaps, for example, by requiring court approval of some kind, or by setting down very narrow conditions, and so on. It's a paradox contained in Bruce Ackerman's proposal for an emergency constitution, and in homologous form, in Alan Dershowitz's notorious idea for the establishment of torture warrants. Now, I don't support the proposal for special legislation to provide for the ticking bomb. I think there's great damage in admitting, of course, its central premise, which is torture is the only way to gain information in such circumstances, uh, which has not been proved to be true. In fact, the overwhelming amount of public evidence that we have now suggests that's not true. But I do acknowledge the source of its appeal, which is the need to reassure the public that those charged to protect them are willing to do what it takes and provided with the powers necessary to keep them safe. Unfortunately, fear often results in policies that do just the opposite. What I yesterday called the broken funnel, the tendency to sweep up every possible jihadist in Afghanistan, even those about whom American forces knew nothing, is a remnant of that fear, as, by the way, uh, those 50 detainees are a remnant in, in Guantanamo. An example of a policy designed to keep the country safe, but which had the effect of making it more vulnerable by debilitating the detention and interrogation system itself, and in the images from Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, by providing immense aid to the enemy in the form of the political legitimation that it craved and needed. Uh, it was as vital as oxygen for them. The Obama administration must cope now with the remnants of these policies and with the resonating echoes of the politics of fear. Some of these remnants we can point to, the 50-odd detainees at Guantanamo, whom the administration has determined can be neither tried nor released. President Obama has admitted this is his most difficult problem. He's talked about it fairly extensively. Prisoners, uh, excuse me, prisoners like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, 
who have been grievously tortured and whom Republicans strenuously object to trying in federal court as the Obama administration has proposed. Such a trial, I think, could be a victory, if a tarnished one, for justice, if indeed it could be or ever is held. As for those who can neither be tried nor released, well, the writers I respect, like David Cole, have proposed carefully crafted detention uh, uh, laws. It seems to me plain that endless detention without trial conflicts dramatically with the most basic American ideals. The key word here is endless. There must either be trials or there must be a point at which the war, and thus the detention, can be declared at an end, which is to say that we come here again to the limits of our guiding, presiding metaphor which is war on terror, and which lives with us still, and which is used to name a hybrid phenomenon that in fact does not resemble a traditional war uh, at all, and that will not end in the way a traditional war ends. It'll take the courage of someone, the political courage of someone to in effect declare it over. At the heart of the problem of the endlessness, uh, at the heart of the problem of the endlessness of the exception, it seems to me, is that of the endlessness of the war on terror. And here we confront another paradox. A war must have an ending, but the war on terror in proper terms is not a war at all, but a strange hybrid that's part conventional war, uh, part a kind of persistent worldwide insurgency, and it's, that insurgency is unlikely to be squelched in our lifetimes. Several years ago, the Pentagon recognized that the term war on terror was unhelpful in dealing with local populations in various countries of the Islamic world, where people regarded it as a war against Islam. Officials in the Pentagon proposed replacing the time-honored global war on terror, known in DOD as GWAT, uh, with GSAVE, the global struggle against violent extremism. Kind of rolls off the tongue. Uh, this effort began with a change to documents, stationery, other things. Uh, <laughs> but it was halted ignominiously when President Bush no matter what memos he received, went on using the war on terror as his rallying cries. The Pentagon kind of threw away the idea. Uh, this was several years ago. Uh, we are confronted still with the problem of how to end the endless war. President Obama, of course, tends not to use the phrase. He's not adopted G-save either, uh, thank heaven. But his political adversaries have identified this as an indication about his lack of ser seriousness in, quote, keeping the country safe. So the war model, which I identified as my second, I think it was the second uh, detail, or second attribute yesterday, lives buried in our politics. It's important to remember, I think, that when we hear such criticisms, they are meant not only as a critique of present policy, but a predicate of blame for, the tra for what tragedy might happen in the future. Uh, and this goes completely to, President, to former Vice President Cheney's uh, critique Irving Howe said, made a comment, the, the critic, one of my favorite critics, Irving Howe, said of 1984, the book appalls us because its terror, far from being inherent in the human condition, is particular to our century. What haunts us is the sickening awareness that in 1984, Orwell has seized upon those elements of our public life that given courage and intelligence were avoidable. A terror particular to our, our century, elements of our public life, Giving, given courage and intelligence were avoidable. This strikes me when I read it uh, now. Um, it cuts to my heart because I thought, uh, though certainly as I stand here, we're not living in anything like the totalitarian state painted so vividly in 1984. It's true, it seems to me, that we are in a situation particular to our century under the influence of the war on terror 
and a state of exception, the end of which we cannot now see. When I read those scenes from the black sites, and I've spent at this point eight years, eight years after the first revelation of official torture, far too much time reading them, when I read those scenes, and I want to quote something from that one of those scenes. This is uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, uh, a little bit about what happened to him. He is, I should say, thought to be the mastermind of 9-11. Um, I would be strapped to a special bed, which could be rotated into a vertical position. A cloth would be placed over my face. Cold water from a bottle that had been kept in a fridge was then poured onto the cloth by one of the guards so that I could not breathe. The cloth was removed. The bed was put into a vertical position. The whole process was repeated uh, during about one hour. Injuries to my ankles and wrists occurred during the waterboarding as I struggled in panic of not being able to breathe. Uh, female interrogators were also present. He's naked uh, all this time. And a doctor was also present, standing out of sight behind the head of the bed. But I saw him when he came to fix a clip to my finger, which was connected to a machine. This is an oximeter. I think it was to measure my pulse and oxygen content in my blood so they could take me to the breaking point. The beatings became worse, and I had cold water directed at me from a hose pipe by guards while I was still in my cell. The worst day was when I was beaten for about half an hour by one of the interrogators. My head was banged against the wall, and it started to bleed. Cold water was poured over my head. Uh, this was then repeated with other interrogators. Finally, I was taken for a session, again, of waterboarding. I was given and sure to drink every four hours. If I refused to drink, then my mouth was forced open by the guard, and it was poured down my throat by force. At the time of my arrest, I weighed 78 kilograms. After one month in detention, I weighed 60 kilograms. I wasn't given any clothes for the first month. Artificial light was on 24 hours a day, but I never saw sunlight. Something about that description, particularly the oximeter on his finger, the doctor always present, and the, the never seeing sunlight. He, of course, had no idea where he was. At one point, apparently, he was in Poland. He saw under his blindfold at one point a bit of snow. Uh, something about that passage in particular reminds me uh, rather vividly of Orwell. And I think, uh, uh, to use Howe's words, um, that these are uh, elements in, of our public life that, given courage and intelligence, were avoidable. What it took to avoid them at a certain perilous moment in our history was to oppose fear however overwhelming it was, with courage and panic with a responsible calculation of risk. Much that, it, that is particular to our century, and I mean now the 21st century, is to be found in that book, 1984, not least the notion of virtual war. I'm talking about that endless shape-shifting struggle fought between the superstates of Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia that forms the background to Orwell's novel. Of this struggle, this endless war, this virtual war, Orwell writes, if we judge it by the standards of previous wars, it's merely an imposture, like the battle between certain ruminant animals whose horns are set at such an angle that they are incapable of hurting one another. But though it is unreal, it is not meaningless. It helps to preserve the special mental atmosphere that a hierarchical society needs. Now, the war on terror certainly is not an imposture. We see tanks, we see artillery, we see soldiers dying, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. But alongside it, I would suggest, stand the ghostly political benefits that Orwell has in mind. War produces fear. 
Fear in the cowed population that is its result produces power. Insofar as terrorism's ultimate product is not death, is not mayhem, but is fear, the most lucrative political emotion, the benefits of that fear are shared between the terrorists who cause it and the political leaders who conduct the fight against them. That is, it benefits very much both sides. Those benefits, though they may lead to an increase in momentary power, do not often lead to wise policy, which we should remember Ignatiev's words about the true purpose of the politique de fear, to instigate an escalatory spiral controlled not by the forces of order, but by the terrorists themselves. We've seen this politics of fear used to great advantage during the last eight years, and its influence remains strongly with us still in the age of Obama. We will see its return with a vengeance after, or in the event of, a further devastating attack. Perhaps with diligence and wise policy, we'll be able to avoid this. But if we do not, we ought to be ready for the fear that will come like a whirlwind in its wake. When I hear the former vice president's word about the necessity of torture, and his criticism of the foolishness of those who renounce its use because it's needed to keep us safe, I feel I hear the distant rustlings of that whirlwind. They are in the distance, as I say, but they can be heard clearly from time to time. In the end, it is this fear and its potent political power that keeps us imprisoned still in the state of exception. We cannot legislate the courage and intelligence in our public life that Howe pleaded for, but only with them in the pursuit of wise policies now can we avoid being swept up in that cycle of fear when and if the next attack comes? Thank you very much for your attention. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.